Yeah, I, I was so happy they, they uh, chose this uh, chapter because it made me stop and just meditate on it um, all week. And it also made me think, this is one that I need to come back to over and over and over. Um, so as we start out here, um, we always start and do key words. Um, if you've been doing this for a long time, you know this. And if you have just started doing Bible study this way, this is still uh, a practice that you do and you start out and you pick all the key words. And what are some of the key words that you all uh, had this week? Praise. Praise. Yes, there was praise. That was a good one. God. God was huge this week. So, as was the psalmist. I and God. Me, mine. Me, mine. Yes. And rescue. Yes, rescue. And trust, yes. Trust was big. Afflicted. Afflicted, affliction, delivered. Mm-hmm. So, why? Yes, why was a big one. Um, and, and also some phrases, not just my and just not God, but my God. And also... Uh, one that was there a couple times in one of the sections, be not far from me, don't be far away. Um, and so those were all. And there, were some, there was one other one that is an important flag word, and it was really important this week. Um, not worship, but it's, it's, it's a lowly little conjunction. Yes. Yes, yes. Yet, 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 but those are big. When you see those, you want to go, hmm, I need to relook at that. I need to look at what they're saying. And so um, that played a big role this week in our, in our text. Uh, so then the other thing that uh, really played a big role this week were uh, figures of speech. And um, that's really important uh, you know, we, uh, why do we use figures of speech? You guys, when you're... The what? To emphasize our point. It's to emphasize our point and also just to help uh, whoever we're talking to uh, get it. You know, it's, it's our word pictures that we create for them. And we have, we have uh, figures of speech that we use slow as molasses. And you go, ah, yeah, I know. Um, one that John and I like to use because we have a teenage boy, herding cats. Um, it, it pretty much, you get the picture. That, hmm? but, yeah, pretty much. And especially when we're at the Boy Scout meeting. They're all over the place. Um, but we use those and we know what we're talking about. And um, the writers in the Bible did the same thing. But they use figures of speech that we have to do a little bit more research about to know what they're talking about. Um, And if we don't take the time to do that, then we miss what they're wanting to communicate to us. And so as you went through, um, what were some of the figures of speech that you um, 
that you saw, and I wrote, I wrote the ones that I could find out here. But let's just start um, with the first one. Did you guys get this many? Figures of speech when you went through? Um, I'm a worm, not a man. What do you think he's trying to convey there? Yeah, the lowliness, just how low. You know, you think about worms, you're not walking upright, you don't even have any legs, um, you're on the ground. And also, when you head out anywhere, you dry up. You just dry up and shrivel, and then, then you're dead, right there in the middle of the sidewalk. Um, and, and we actually, you know, we've seen a lot of that, because they come up out of the ground when it rains, and then they go off, and then they dry out and die. Um, and then we've got many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan, ravening and roaring lion. And what comes to mind when you think about that? The strength of his enemies. Yeah. The strength of his enemies. And also, um, have, do any of you all have experience with cattle? Does anyone have experience with cattle? What, what do cattle do? Like, if you go out, what do they do when you're going out maybe to feed them or something like that? They do. They gather around you. And, and they do it by habit. And especially if you pull up in a truck that's the same color of the truck of the people that own the cattle, they're going to come. And I have a really funny story about my husband, John. He likes to go fishing, and he goes out to Sooner Lake. And one time he, he headed off across a pasture, and there were all these cows kind of dotted out around there. So he went to the lake, and then as he's going, he starts kind of looking around, and they are kind of start walking in towards him. And then he was fishing for a while, and he turned around, and they're just all lined up around him. Um, and then he fished for a while, and they're out a distance. He's fishing for a while more, and then he looks around, and they're like really, really close. And it just freaked him out. And so, you know, when it's like many bulls encompass me. Okay, these aren't nice grazing cattle. They're not dairy cattle. They're like bull riding bulls. And they're surrounding, completely surrounding him. And they're strong. And so it's the strength of the enemies, the lion, bulls, things like that, and, and the fact that they're just completely encircling him. And then poured out like water and bones are out of joint. What do you think that would, would kind of signify? Crucifixion, but let's back up, because that's, that is actually um, part of our lesson is that there are so many, so many layers to this, because we're starting out, and the psalmist, who most people say is David, that's pretty much accepted that David has written this, we're going to look at it from his perspective first, and then we're going to go on into even more meaning to it. So when David's He's poured out like water and his bones are out of joint. What is he talking about? He's just exhausted. He's exhausted. He has lost his physical strength. And hold on to the crucifixion part because we're going to head that way. Um, 
My heart is like wax melted within my breast. He's done. He's basically lost not only his physical strength, but what? His emotional strength. So, and our, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, which is like a piece of clay stuck out in the sun, and it just dries up. Um, and the, my tongue sticks to my jaws. When is it when you feel like your tongue is stuck to your jaws? It's really dry. When you're dehydrated, and when do you get dehydrated sometimes? How about when you're getting ready to get up and stand up and talk in front of people? (laughs) And you start going, I really need to drink water. I'm very nervous about this. You've got some fear in there, and um, you're like, You're dehydrated. And also you have some fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, and then lay me in the dust of death is basically you're going to die. And then dogs encompass me. It's kind of, we started out with bulls and lions, and now the psalmist goes to dogs encompass me. And, and what do you think that would describe? Exactly. Did you guys hear what Tony said? Packs of wild dogs. That was very common back then. And this is part of where your research helps you. Because we think of dogs and we think man's best friend, loyal. It's the only one that is excited to see me when I get home and, and all of that. That's, not what that. that's not what they thought of dogs. And if we just go through that and read packs of wild dogs, we kind of miss what they're talking about. And not only were they fearful, because packs of wild dogs could attack and tear you limb from limb, but also dogs were what in their culture? They were unclean. They were unclean, and they were just despised and reviled. And so not only are they talking about, you know, an enemy that could come and rip you limb from limb, but a very filthy, despised just, you know, hated enemy that wasn't even clean. And so this is what they're talking about, just the, the evilness of the enemy and, you know, the uncleanness. So that's uh, how he conveys that message to uh, who he's talking to. And then count all my bones. Starvation. Yes, starvation. Very emaciated and close to death. And then divide my garments among them. Jesus. Yes. 
And again, before that, um, when David is writing this, dividing, if he's talking about they divide my garments among them, is back then, okay, when you die, what do people do with your belongings? They divide them up. And so basically, they're dividing garments means my death is sure. They are sure I'm going to die, and they are dividing my garments because it's positive that I'm going to die. So um, he's conveying that that is how close he is to death, that everyone around him is sure. And then we go back to the power of the dog, the mouth of the lion, the horns of the wild oxen. These are all, you know, referring back here are all these things. Um, so it's, it's good to see, you know, all the figures of speech that go into this. Uh, they're more than just a, a, a way to say it poetically. They're a way to convey this. And also, uh, as we go through, you know, this, David wrote this, and he wrote it from being human. And so we can also say, ah, this is a person who knows what this feels like. And then um, we'll see later that there's someone else that knows that too. And so then, um, as you went through the sections of um, this text, we had three distinct sections in here. And the first one, uh, verses 1 through 10, what are some of the, what did you guys Entitle that. Rejected by God. Very good. Rejected. Anybody else? Cry for help. Anybody? Despised by all, it said. Despised by all. So this section was essentially, it was agony, wasn't it? It was agony and, and lament. It was... But didn't you think it also um, alternated with hope? Like the first two verses were, I cry out, and then, yet you are holy and drawn to Yes. Yes, and that is exactly right, Tony. He alternated there, and we're actually going to delve into that more here in, in uh, a couple questions. But generally, that first, and he actually did that on every single one of them, didn't he? He always went back to yet. Um, which is absolutely beautiful. But so the second section, which is 11 through 21, what, what would be a title for that section? The enemies are very near. The enemies are near. 
anybody else have a title they put on that? Please come to my aid. So this section was, uh, yeah, please come to my aid. It was more of a... Um, he was describing his situation, that's right. And he was also petitioning, wasn't he? He was petitioning God. Here's my situation, please come to my aid. Yes. Petition for helpless state. And then the third section what what was the third section? Thanksgiving and praise. Thanksgiving and praise. Yes. Adoration. Adoration. I heard hope. Exactly. This was basically praise in all of these things and also uh, a lot of worship, wasn't it? And so generally the, there were, you know, three sections of this. And in this first section that we were talking about that um, have to find my thing here. That the psalmist expressed agony. And what was the agony that the psalmist expressed? Yeah, where's God? Loneliness. 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 Own <laughs> stuff. Um. And then also, when did the writer express? This agony and this loneliness. Day and night. Day and night. That's right. So, basically, felt abandoned by God all the time. And then, what else was he experiencing? as he went through that. Ridicule. Ridicule. Exactly, June. Scorned by mankind, they wag their heads. Despised by the people, they make mouths at me. They jeer at me. Um, he, He basically... All, everyone around him 
was mocking him and saying, well, you saviors, let God save you. You believe in God, let him save you. Let's see it. Um, and again, on one level, this is David. And then we'll see on another level, this is Jesus. So then, here we go, Tony. How does the psalmist reassure himself? What does he continue to do? And this is where we look at our yets and our buts. <laughs> and we just, yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. But I'm a worm. But he also says, yet you are he who took me from the womb, and you made me trust you at my mother's breasts. So what, what he does, what the psalmist does, is he lays out his, his cry of anguish. And then what does he do? He says what's true about God. Um, and he also recalls God's faithfulness to Israel. And I think that's really, I think that's a really important thing to think about is he goes and he says, here's what I know about God. And it doesn't have anything to do with me specifically. It has to do with Israel. So he actually recalls God's faithfulness to Israel. He zooms out and he, he goes, this is God who is faithful to Israel. So that encompasses Genesis clear up to where he's sitting now, where David is. This is what God has done for Israel. So um, I think that's a good pattern for us to, uh, to go, here is God and how he works in history. Look what he's done. And then he comes back and he says, and me specifically, here is what you have done for me. You have been my God from delivering me, um, taking me out of the womb. You have been my God since then. And so he does that. He recalls that. Um, and Tony, like you said, he always... Puts it out there, and then he says, yet this, this is true about you. This is what I know about you. And I think that's very, very important. So what does that tell us about uh, worship? Because he does. He comes back and he worships God after he lays this out. Uh, what do you think that, what did that tell you all about worship, the act of worship? Exactly. It, it's, the focus is not, it's, worship is not based on circumstances. And the other thing it's not based on, because remember how he felt. He felt low. And he felt like he, and he, this was a true feeling too. He didn't just feel that way. He was being attacked. He was surrounded and everything. And yet what did he do? He praised God. And so, yes, Phyllis. Well, it may be kind of a minor point, but it strikes me in my mind that maybe um, um, one of those phrases, uh, 
been with me all my life, from my birth, mm-hmm. the very moment of my birth. Well, none of us are consciously aware of God at that moment, but yet the recognition of his relationship with God, that even when he wasn't able to be aware of the of God, it was a type of worship to realize God, God is from all time for me. Yes. That's exactly right. It, it, it's something that's apart from just how we feel or what we know. It has to do with God and what's true about him, and it's been true since the time of my birth, and I wasn't even aware of it. And so this almost is stating that as this is true. And, um, and the thing is, oh, sometimes it's like, oh, you should... Praise him anyway, no matter how you feel. But it's like, because in all, it's not because that's to make yourself feel better. It's because that's what is true. And you are stating, you are praising and worshiping God because it's true. And so that's important. So our act of worship, it's not tied to circumstances. And it's not tied to feelings. It's in spite of. Um, And so then the psalmist, he started with a lament, and by the end of the passage, he was in praise. And we see here where he was rescued there. David was rescued in that instance. when we look ahead, Jesus was not rescued in that instance, but in, he, he came through on the other side, though, of death. So the rescue was for us, um, which is just, there isn't anything more beautiful than that, but anyway. So the solution to the problems, what specifically did the psalmist ask for? He asked for deliverance. Exactly. Deliver my soul from the sword. Deliver my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the dog. He asked for God's deliverance or rescue, as Glenda said. And what, what did he ask for even before that? To be near to him. That's right. He asked for God's presence. Be not far from me. Do not be far off. Come quickly to my aid. He asked for God's presence, and then he asks for God's deliverance. And I think that's a good order, too, to be with me and then deliver me. Um, And so that's what the psalmist was doing as he was basically worshiping God. And He's our only hope, exactly. And he he was looking for God's rescue, he was not trying to figure his own way out or expect someone else to come 
and rescue him. It was God that was, he was petitioning to rescue him. So he realized there is no other way. Um, and it's not God, let me figure out a way out of this. It's God, rescue me. is listening yes and and the thing is to state that he is listening even when I don't feel like he's listening and to know this I feel this way but this isn't it isn't true that you aren't listening but I feel this way and the other thing is is that the deliverance may come as it did in David's case or it may be the ultimate deliverance which we see which was Jesus, um, and that may be um, the deliverance that we end up with in whatever it is that we're praying about. Um, it may not be a deliverance that we see on this side. Um, and so that's also something to remember and then to go through with, I will praise him because of your, deliver- your ultimate deliverance that you have. So speaking of that, Um, There's no getting around the fact that this does sound, which is where we go with it when we read it, because a lot of us have learned it, that, ah, this is Jesus on the cross. Um, And so that's where we go. But I think it's important to study through it from the original writer's perspective. And then then also to know, you know, David may or may not have known that he was writing prophetically. Um, We don't know that. Um, and some some scholars even go, well, it's not prophetic. It's just that the um, they went back and said, this is like this. But uh, other scholars are like, yes, this is prophecy. And if you look in um, in the gospel writers, they basically say, in the Psalms, it was prophesied. So they had it that, these psalms that sound so much like Jesus were, in fact, also prophecy of Jesus. So this very, yeah, it's also a beautiful, beautiful when you read it. It's like reading in Isaiah, and you just go, wow, that is such a clear picture. Um, how could you miss it, is what you, you think. But it's also just, you just want to praise God that he, He wants to communicate to us. He doesn't have to, and he wants to. And that's amazing that he would work through history. It's not that just he didn't just say it from the top of a mountain. He said it through working through history, through real people and how they lived, and what he had to have happen 
to have it written down, for it to be there. And I mean, the more you think about it, it's there's more and more layers. So anyway, I have to quit that and keep going. <laughs> so, um, but when we just as when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to us, that's a little, a little verse, one part of a verse. But to the people that would have known Psalms, it would have meant this whole psalm. Because um, think about now how uh, we do with music. You hear three words of a song and it's stuck in your head for days. The whole thing. And so um, these were their songs that they learned by. They, they had these psalms that they read them in the synagogue. They used them in ceremony. So these are their, these are their hymns. These are their popular songs. This is what they had. And so these, these, when he says this, this recalls to mind the entire, this entire chapter and not just, oh, he quoted a verse out of the Bible, but it's, it's this whole chapter. And so it's, it brings us back to, um, as you looked through these different uh, verses in the New Testament where they referred back or they recorded what happened. Um, did you see just how amazing this followed, or didn't follow, it declared what was going to happen to Jesus. In, in Psalm 22.1, he was forsaken by God. In Matthew 27.46, what did he say? Why have you forsaken me? And if you think about that, Jesus, it was God in the flesh. He was God and man. He feels that. He feels that completely. And he not only feels it, but it's true. In Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And that's another thing that we can't explain. People go back and forth on that, that God, how could Jesus be God and be forsaken by God and da-da-da-da-da, and you can go and chase that all day. But there's a lot of stuff that we just have to go, that's what it says, and that is who God is. And it's, and then we have to be okay with, duh, he's God. We're not going to be able to figure him out. And so... Jesus was forsaken. And the other thing about him being forsaken by God is we feel that way. How do you feel when you've been, you know, betrayed by your friends or uh, something happens and you're like, wow, I wasn't expecting that? Um, how does that feel? It feels bad. Um, and it feels a lot worse than... If you get, if something happens to you that you actually 
dessert, doesn't it? You know, you can have stuff happen to you that, well, yeah, I had that coming. Doesn't feel good, but in the back of my mind, I know I had that coming. Um, but then there's the one that hits you from out of the blue. And you're like, wow. Why, why did that happen? And um, that hurts worse, doesn't it? So, and it, when you think about this happening to Jesus, he's the only being that didn't have anything coming. Because all of us, on some level, deserve what we get. And we can say, why me and all of that? But in the end, and again, you can chase that rabbit going, well, you know, is God punishing me or da-da-da-da? And all that aside, because it doesn't mean every time something happens you're being punished or something like that. What it means is there isn't one of us that is righteous. So... There's something that's going to have happened that we deserved. And we all deserve the wrath of God. And Jesus is the only one who did not. And so he is the only one. He felt all of that and he felt it perfectly. So that's absolutely amazing. So then when we go on to uh, Psalm 22.7 and 22.8, and you read in there um, about the people surrounding him on the cross, they were saying, you know, he's, he was mocking. They were mocking him. Yeah. Let, let's see that. Let's see your God save you. Let's see God save you. And then Psalm twenty-two, fourteen. Sorry, I'm going to have to get a Kleenex here. But <laughs> poured out like water, bones are out of joint, heart is like wax, melted within my breast, and it talks about that. With Jesus. Psalm twenty two sixteen and John twenty twenty four to twenty seven. What was that one? Pierced hands. And then twenty two seventeen, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. And then um, 22.18, again, we talked about they divided his garments. And then, and they cast, oh, they cast lots for his garments. That's right. Tony, that's a good point. They, they, they were robbers. They stole his clothes. His, his family would have been the one 
that would have had his clothes, but they cast lots for his, his garments. And so then, um, then we go to Psalm 22, 22, and Hebrews 2, 12. What was that? That was the praise portion, wasn't it? And I I just want to read through Hebrews a little bit more than just 2.12 with that. um, Because I think it fills it in. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should be made the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. For he... Who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So that's, um, all of that is why he's going to be praised, because he has accomplished that. And then Psalm twenty-two thirty-one. what was that? It is finished. He has done it. It is finished. Um, to do, and to bring about, to not just it's over, but it has been accomplished. So it's not just something's done, but it's it's fulfilled. Exactly. Beautiful word. So... So have you asked God, where are you? Have you guys asked God that? I have. And sometimes for not very good reason. <laughs> um, but there, some of the reasons that we might ask God, where are you, uh, involve um, like physical pain, sometimes physical pain. Uh, sometimes loss, a lot of times that's uh, a loss of life or, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. He, he, he was there with him. He did. Oh, I think that, that's 
walking a gym. <laughs> and did talk about that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if I know the answer to that question, but I would say be very, be a little careful in thinking through what you even mean when you say God cannot look at sin. I remember a guy telling me one time that God knows every violent and pornographic act that has ever been done in the universe. And God's seen it all. And that just, I never really thought about it that way. Like, that just astounded me. I want to shield my eyes from it, yet the creator of the universe knows it all. So obviously it can't mean that he doesn't see it, but that he doesn't know it. He is unaffected by it in, in, the, in the means of temptation. He is deeply affected by it, by its means of redemption, judgment, and restoration. And that's when you begin to say, okay, so what he's talking about here is the forsaking. How does God forsake Christ on the cross? And how he forsakes him is by not vindicating from the cross, but through the cross, mm -hmm. the mission of God, which I'm sure we're already describing. So that... <laughs> and yeah, and we talked about that, that you can say, okay, so how does this work, and chase that around, or you can say, this is something that we can't even get all of the mechanics to, but we know the truth about it. And so that's kind of what you're saying is that this is true. And that's exactly what the psalmist has done. He has stated the truth about God. And, um, and also, one, I think in one of the commentators that I um, was reading that, and I'm kind of paraphrasing what he said, but uh, Christ's victory over death was not by avoiding it, but by going through it and coming out on the other side is the victory. And that is the rescue. And again, that rescue goes to all of us. That is the ultimate rescue, is that he's defeated death, not by avoiding it, but by actually defeating it. 
And so that is the, the main, then that is what spurs all of the praise. And so then when we ask God, where are you, and you feel like he's distant and silent, what, is, what do you do uh, when you feel that way? When you have asked that, what do you do? And, um, and, and also, one of the things that I thought about, I think God was kind of saying, what do you do? Do you do it the same as you used to do it? Or do you, has, that, has it changed over time, uh, what you do? Marilyn, you think it's changed? I would just be mad. Mm-hmm. Be mad about it? Shut it out and not come to church and do all that. But now when I kind of get that feeling, I just, I just pray more. Mm-hmm. I think I that's think really that good. Give me an answer. <laughs> right. And and I really think that this this was a beautiful, a beautiful passage for us to see, ah, here is how I should deal with that. And not just as example, but also um, because Christ has done this as well, and then through the Holy Spirit, we can do that um, because He's already done it for us. And so He's He's not only died on the cross, but He has gone through all of these points of anguish. That's what's so cool about David writing this, and then Jesus living this. And then he's done it perfectly through the Holy Spirit. We have that. We have that power to do all of this. So back to the question, if it hasn't changed, if you still go sit in the corner and pout about it, which is, I'm right up there, is that a, something that maybe we need to pray that God would change how we deal with uh, when we feel abandoned or when we're being attacked and stuff, that he would help us deal with that in the right way um, so that it is part of worship, uh, the way that we deal with it. And it doesn't mean we're, you know, doing the happy, happy, joy, joy dance, even though, but we're actually doing it through his power that we are responding properly. Um, And that's... That's really important, and I think that's also uh, things where you look at your life uh, since you have been born again in Christ, and have, have you grown in that area? Have you changed? Are you changing? And is this going to help you? As Genevieve said, are we going to apply this so that this helps us change even more in the direction um, that he wants to change us? Towards him, so it's it's a good thing to think about. Um, I think I go back. I think the example he gives, even though he feels like he's been forsaken, he remembers the times when God has blessed him and has blessed the Israelites. And I mean, I think that's what we need to do. We need to remember, you know, what he's done for us and how he's been there for us and how he's been there for others that we love. Yeah. Am I living close enough to him that I feel his, you know, 
I think that's that's very true, Tony. And also that that how we feel is not the truth is not always, in fact, a lot of times, is not the truth about something. How, fe- how we feel, and then he goes back and he states the truth about God. And again, like we were saying, he states it over time, Israel, and then he states it personally. And I think that's really, again, really important to get the big picture on who God is and then come back to what he does for us personally. So how does it help us to know Jesus also experienced uh, despair and abandonment? How does that help us? It's where our hope comes from. It's where our hope comes from? Yeah. And also, uh, and, and what our hope comes from that because you know, when you're going to somebody, well, you don't know how I feel. You don't. You just don't know it. You don't get it. Um, and we can say that to other people, but then someone will come along that's been through exactly the same thing that you have been through. Does it help? Because you realize, wow, they they've done, they've been through this. They know what it's like, and a lot of times they've been through it, and they're on the other side of it. Um, but they can enter into they can have more empathy for you because they know what it's like. Um, and so when Jesus does this, and again, he does this perfectly, he perfectly experiences all of this and all of these feelings. But you, you do realize, because it's very hard, you think, well, he was God, but he was also man, and he also did go through all of these things without sinning. And so it is very helpful because it's like he actually does know exactly what this is like. And he comforts us. He's been comforted is what what you're you're saying, I guess. He's been comforted so he can therefore comfort us. Yes, he's been comforted and he can comfort us. And in addition to that, um, because he has done that, then with the Holy Spirit, we have that that's been done for us already. Yes? I think, you, I think another thing is that we all want to become like Jesus. That's mm-hmm. our, my parents, my grandchildren, and they become like Jesus, make us like Jesus, transform us, change us, make us like Jesus until we come to Christ. And then we go, oh, well, not that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's that is exactly, and I think that's very, um, because it said in he was perfected through suffering, and um, that's a that's a weird one too. That's a and a strange word because if he was Jesus, he was perfect, but he was also perfected because a thing was accomplished. God's plan was accomplished through suffering of Jesus. So uh, for us to balk at the suffering, it's a little bit, hmm, you need to think about that and repent of that. 
let's, uh, let's, let's, let's pick up this Psalm, Psalm 22. And um, I, I remember taking this class, I took a class in college on the Psalms. And it was so helpful. And probably the number one thing I learned, and it's, there's 150 of them, so it's difficult. One of the things that, you know, uh, that, that, that Brenda, Nancy, and I would love for, for us to be able to do as a group here is not just to know Psalm 22, but to bring some of the, the principles of how to interpret a psalm, some of the theology that comes from the psalms, um, some of the great questions that we want to ask. Like even the statement, think about this for a second, why it's good for us to maybe say something and then realize, wow, I probably need a little more time to explain the fullness of what maybe that means for God cannot look at sin. Like, I get if, if Genevieve were to just say that, my first response isn't, well, that's not, that's not true. No, my first response is, what do you mean by that? And Genevieve starts talking about the difference between God and sin. And I go, oh, I, I get that. So that statement is true, but we need to understand how it's true. And so sometimes that's how the Bible then speaks to us about God. God says that he turned his face. What do, you, what do we mean by that? What is that? Just, did he or did he not? Well, the Bible said he did, so obviously he did. But what does it mean that he did? And then we get to try to understand that. So the Psalms come to us, and we need to remember, highly poetic language which doesn't mean it's not true. But when it's poetic, it's figurative, isn't it? Which it's true. It's, it's not figurative, and that's not true. Some people believe that. Some people believe figurative language is not true. Um, one of my favorite examples, one of the first things I always think about is when Jesus said, speaking of Herod, they said, Herod wants to meet with you. And he says, yeah, you go tell that fox. Literally or figuratively? Herod being a fox. It's figurative. But we all know what he means by that, right? That sly, thieving, kind of connivering, just uh, that fox. You get it. You know. So is that a true statement? Yes. So what does Jesus mean by that? And that's where you, and the Psalms write like that, which means they're going to be, why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me? It's going to sound like your child, right, in a way. Not, hear me, I'm not saying Jesus. I'm saying the psalmist. So as he is describing this, he is in the depths of, of despair. But, for example, um, just the idea, I want you to, before you just go, yes, think about this. Like, did God abandon Jesus? Did God abandon him? So when we say, you know, Jesus understands what it's like to be alone and to be abandoned, well, I mean, the text seems to say yes. But then we have to ask another question. In, in the, the, this one I argue is a, is a better question to ask. In what way did God abandon Christ? But in what way did God abandon him? Because we all know this, right? Jesus knew what God was doing on the cross, right? We all understand that? Jesus wasn't confused. Jesus wasn't like, how did I get here? This makes no sense to me. I did not have this purpose for my life. My mom said this would never happen. I mean, there's none of that. So he is on the cross, fully aware of how that fits into God's plan. And in that context, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my groan? Why are, you know, so in that context, he is describing this. So if you begin to think about it, so in what way did God abandon Christ? What is he saying there? If we were to say Jesus on the cross, if we could have that conversation with him, what do you mean by that? Do you believe that God doesn't love you, Jesus? What do you think he would say? Let's just be honest. What do you think he would say? No, I'm not saying he doesn't love me. Okay, so 
Do you think like he doesn't know where you are right now? Like he abandoned you like that? Well, no, obviously he knows where I am. Okay. So are you saying that you don't understand like the purpose for this? Like he's left you to endure this alone? What do you think Jesus would say? Think about it. It's not hard. No, I, that's not what I mean. I don't mean God, God has left me to do this all by myself and the Father has somehow left the room. So when we begin, so what do, we, what do you mean by that, Jesus? And what do you, we'll point out to, and this is where we can't, I'm not trying to get anybody off any hooks. I just have to allow the text to A, speak for itself, and then for us to try to understand the text in light of what the Bible teaches about Psalm 22, and what the Bible teaches about God's plan of redemption, what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is and who God is. Last night, I was right here, actually, not that many hours ago, teaching on the triune nature of God, particularly within the Gospels. And Jesus says things like, the Father and I are one, that I do the work of the Father. There's nothing I do, nothing I do, that isn't the work of the Father. Is that the same thing when he's on the cross? So what do you mean, God, why have you forsaken me? Well, it appears, and again, I don't want to just, does it not appear that what Jesus is describing is, think about what the words are being said all around, think about his prayer the night before. Like, God, you're going to let me die here. So there we go. So the forsaking is not him turning his back, not him being unaware but you're going to put me through this, right? It's that kind of forsaking. I don't know what that feels like. Again, I mean, I've got to be careful with language. I mean, I, I get it. I mean, I've, 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 I've suffered not as many as you have suffered. You've probably suffered many of you more than I have, but i got, I got some years left. Maybe I'll be able to catch up to you. I don't know. But truly, I mean, that's why I might, when someone comes into my office, I feel like God has forsaken me. Okay, I'd love to talk about that. How? Is what you mean by that, you know, Randy, is what you mean by that? Okay, she was my assistant for years, so like, she doesn't mind if I pull her out and use her in this example at all. Um, so, Randy, like what you mean by that forsaking is you know that God is with you. You know that God is giving you the Holy Spirit and the strength to go through this. He has chosen in his wisdom to allow you to go through this. And he has not rescued you from this suffering. Is that what you mean? That's exactly what I mean. Obviously, he hasn't. So do you see how the context really doesn't, it's not that he did or that he didn't, it's how did God do it? And I, I think that th thinking theologically through this, we then begin to see how important it is this is why I get a little bit nervous when people talk about being disappointed with God. Or Jesus knows how I feel being utterly forsaken. Who, who forsook you? Oh, my husband. Don't, utterly forsaken by him. He left me completely alone, just like God did with Jesus. Um, actually, not at all like God did with Jesus, for the record. <laughs> God was not faithless to Jesus. You do know that, right? So... I would even challenge you, like, don't try to find solace and peace by just misappropriating certain things to God, because actually that's not true. I mean, actually, I find no hope in the fact, if you were to somehow convince me that Jesus knows what it's like, because just like people, sinful, terrible people, have abandoned and forsaken me, 
like God did to Jesus. So me and Jesus, are, that just makes me not impressed with the whole God thing. That doesn't, that doesn't give me confidence. Right? Does that give you confidence? I don't want to know that. And, and by the way, do you think that's what the Bible teaches? Answer? The Bible doesn't teach that at all. So this is the beauty of it, is that we get to, we get to deal with the reality of the text. Okay? There is a, and, and I, I think this kind of answers your question. Brenda, so your question, if you could just state it kind of at the, at the very beginning again, because it was dealing with the, um, from the oxen, right, D down in verse 21. 21. So the, the question which was, Yes. Or was that just him stating uh, a pre pre uh, Yes. Yeah. Yep. Pre having this happen, even for David. Yes. So what we what we wrestle with, and we'll look at this. I want to look at this both um, hermeneutically, so interpretively, so that you'll be able to apply it in other contexts. Okay. So I I don't just like giving you an answer. Um, I'm not real fun. I, I've never really enjoyed professors that went, oh yeah, question number five, the answer is four. Um, doesn't really help me because next time I get a question, I'll have no idea how to figure out the answer. So I love to try to come along and say, let's, let's learn not just what the answer is, but let's learn how to get that answer. Don't you like to do that? So with the Bible, that's my favorite thing. So this is kind of an interesting concept, and we'll actually see um, have rescued, will rescue. And this is where we, we're going to be able to play. So when you're looking at Psalm 22... Um, much like you could for Sunday. I thought it was kind of interesting. I preached Psalm 50, or Isaiah 53 on Sunday, and we're in Psalm 22 today, right? Two very similar ideas that describe Jesus as the fulfillment of these things. But then we need to remember that Isaiah is far more of a prophecy down the road, whereas the psalmist seems to be writing that there is a first context, right, which is David, and then there becomes this second context, which is Jesus. And, and by the way, it's, it's totally okay to say, hey, I don't know if I know the exact answer because let's, let's think about this. Like even in David's life, um, when David writes Psalm 22, which we don't know exactly when he wrote it, has God rescued him or will God rescue him? What's the answer? Yes. The answer is, I could say, David, like, are you rescued? And he's like, well, which time? Think about it. Like, have you been rescued by God? Or are some of you still never been rescued? By well, no, actually, I've been rescued many times. It doesn't feel like it, because right now, it's so bad. <laughs> I don't even know if I care about past rescuings. Like, I, you know, I, I, I think about this. I, I have prayed for my sister, Rhonda. Um, I was little when she was diagnosed with leukemia. So she was 16, 17, 1977, so I would have been eight, nine years old. And I just remember his bed, God, let her live. Don't let her die. Don't let Ron, I mean, just, heart, just uh, for whatever, I, I just was heart poured out. Don't let my sister die. Um, had no idea she'd lived to 60, almost, okay, and get colon cancer, right? Had no idea that that was her whole life. And so I found myself a few years ago when she was diagnosed with colon cancer acting like a nine-year-old. Just, God, don't let her die of colon cancer. Right? Who knows? 
Um, she'll probably outlive me for all I know, right? So did God rescue her or does God need to rescue her? And the answer is what? The answer is kind of like a yes. So even within David's life, what David seems to do many, many times is David seems to look, because both of these are actually tied in terms of this idea, okay? What we need to remember, biblically speaking, is that the rescue of God is not tied to our circumstances. The rescue of God is actually, God's rescue of us, is actually tied to his character. This is, what is, this is what is holding it all together. Tell me what God is like. God is a rescuer. Really, David? Like, where are you? Hiding from who? Saul. Like, you're hiding from him. Yeah. Are you the anointed king of Israel? Yes. Okay, but you're hiding from Saul. Yes. Okay, that just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I know. Who anointed you? God. And then he did what? Told you to run for your life? Yeah. Does anybody else just have a hard time making those just kind of fit? You're the anointed king, so you defeated Goliath, and you got what for that? Oh, God, hate, or, uh, Saul hated me, tried to kill me. Okay. So, okay, how does this work? Right? So now all of a sudden you have this insight. So what is David doing? So th this is one of the best things to do with the Psalms. It doesn't work for all of them. Psalm 8, oh, how majestic is your name? Your name is... So there's, there are these praise, or these halal these wonderful praises, that's like hallelujah. You know what that word means? I, whenever I hear it, I just get so sad that there are Christians out there that don't know what it means. Hallelujah does not mean, isn't this awesome? Okay? Okay? How many of you, when you hear that, you go, that, mean, that just means woo! No, it doesn't mean woo. It doesn't mean that's awesome. It doesn't, you know what it means? A halal is praise. This just links. What does that sound like to you? Yahweh. Hallelujah. I praise Yahweh. See the specific of that? So whenever we hear, let us sing hallelujah, it is not just, isn't this, man, Miami won their game this weekend against Florida State. Hallelujah. I, I get it, right? If, if I want to just use this as just an exclamatory wow, then that's fine. But this isn't just an exclamatory wow, is it? Like, it's, it's more than that. So when there are these praise hymns that we see in the Psalms, they're a little bit different, but the laments, okay? not Because the, the laments, the cries out. Um, and then you'll have a lament tied to an imprecatory. You know what imprecatory means? Imprecatory is where I'm asking God to kill people for me, which is a very popular way for the, pro, for the prophets, for David, vindicate me, O God. Rise up, O God. Come to my defense. May there be judgment against those. And by the way, I just I was teaching this morning in my men's Bible study from Romans chapter 12. Before you think an imprecatory psalm sounds unchristian, I would argue it is profoundly Christian. Profoundly Christian. 
What is unchristian, I would argue, is you taking vindication against your enemies. That is unchristian. Romans 12 says, leave room for God's wrath. What is very Christian is to trust God with your enemies. That is very Christian, by the way. Do you trust God? So the imprecatory psalms are not just uh, kind of this bypassing the system so that you're allowed to be mad at people. I would argue, uh, I, remember, I remember literally when I first moved here, I, some of you that know the history, when I first moved here, I expected it to be more difficult than it was. You guys are just, it was easier than I, it was really, it was way easier than I ever thought it would be. I kind of ex- came here in light of the history. I came here expecting there to be more of like a fight when I showed up. And there really just wasn't. And so I prepared myself before I moved, um, probably back in like March or maybe even uh, February of, of 2004, reading the Psalms because I thought maybe as I, you know, as I kind of stand alongside the elders and as I try to kind of explain why tough decisions need to be made, like I might need to be like praying some of these Psalms. <laughs> and so I did this. And then I get here and I didn't really have any problems. I had a couple of conversations, but for the most part, I don't know if they agreed, but it really wasn't that bad. Like, I never went through what the elders had to go. I never went through a lot of the pain that many others did. And I kind of felt a little guilty about that. Wondered, and then I began to wonder, like, am I doing something wrong? Because I don't seem to have enemies. I mean, think about this. Like, one of the most powerful ideas that we'll actually find in the Psalms and that we see personified in Jesus is the fact that to be the, 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 the man or the woman of God should create a certain degree of bristling around you, Right? So therefore, to have adversarial roles against us actually might be a sign we're in God's plan. Therefore, let us cry out to him as we are in his plan that he would come to our rescue, which, by the way, is Psalm 22. This is Jesus. God, I'm I'm doing your will. I'm doing your plan. Rescue me. Vindicate me. Like, validate who I am and what I have said and what I have preached. May the words that I have spoken be true, right? And and Jesus, the man God, right? Because he's also human. Can't get rid of that ever. Okay, he incarnated. Is is, is human, divine, and he is doing the same thing. So notice how, this this is a really good way to read these Psalms. We can just, I'll back up and we'll even look at um, verse, uh, chapter 20. So Psalm 20. And this is beautiful. Almost every psalm that has that lament or that that cry out, whether it's imprecatory or something else, they almost always begin and then end in the same way. Okay? And notice this. This will really help you understand 22. Okay? Just looking at the flow. Look at how 20 begins. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. And then he continues on. What's what's he he describing? Like that God would be the one that would come to your aid. That God would be the one that would come and that would rescue you. That God would be the one that from his sanctuary, he would look upon you with favor. May God do that. May God do that. May God do. Do you hear the kind of the appeal? Notice how it ends. Jump down, verse 7, or go, go verse 6. It's, it's a short psalm. If you look at the long ones, there's a lot more lamenting that happens. This is a short one. But look at verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. 
So David is trusting what? Has he been rescued? Or is he in the middle of needing rescue? And the answer is what? Yes. He has been, and he is now in the needing. And what does he go back to? See, this is why the Psalms will be such a joy to you. Is because what they do is, like they don't, it's like when I meet Christians that just love Job. <laughs> um, I, oh, they do. They, I meet so many people, like, man, I just love Job. And I, can, I know that I'm about to hear this long tirade about how nobody gets it and everybody has left me and God doesn't love me either. And I'm like, that's really not the story of Job. That's not the story of Job, by the way. But I can almost tell where they're going with this, right? Those people that just love that. I love the book of Job because what it actually reminds me is God has a plan above and far beyond my ability to comprehend. And although I may even ask him things, at best I will ask him in foolishness. And because of his character and his kindness, he puts up with an idiot named Jim Johnson who speaks rashly and boldly but is so gracious, he does not just cause me to burst into flames. That's what I love about the book of Job. <laughs> I tie into his character, which God doesn't even have to. He has no, I have no right to know why God allowed my life to happen the way that it did. You know that, right? Like, I know that's so not cool to say in our culture. I'm telling you, it's just what the Bible teaches. And I'm telling you, it makes me love him all the more. I, I know that for some people, they don't get that. And I agonize if you don't. I would even love to come and try to explain to you how to get there a little bit. But that's kind of the way it is. So David is in the middle of this going, like, I don't see it, but I'm going to tie into what I know about your character. For I know that the Lord saves his anointed and that he will answer him from his holy heaven with his saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we trust in the name of Yahweh, our God. They collapse and fall meaning his enemies. But we rise and stand upright, upright. May Yahweh save the king. May he answer us when we call. Do you see how he moved? How does it begin? Oh, it's terrible. I think we're all going to die. Anyone else want to come sit with me in my mud pile? Help me, God. That's how so many of them begin, which I love the honesty of that. I've been there. I've been in the mud pile. I've been... I've been scared, I've been lost, I've been confused. And then, and then I usually add to that confusion, more confusion. And then when I feel like I'm not getting anywhere, I love to add friends who will just help me with my confusion. And then we have like lots of people in the mud pile. And, and, and I've learned, and it's been hard for me to learn, I've learned to surround myself with people who will come to me, even when I don't want to hear it, and say, can we remember the character of God? Like this is, um, there's a great Wall Street Journal article um, that's talking about the danger of empathy. You ready? You hear that? The danger of empathy. Um, it actually calls for, I thought this was interesting. Did I tell you what article it was found, or what book it was, or a magazine it was found in? The Wall Street Journal. That's not the Bible. Okay, it's not Zondervan Publishing. But what they are describing has, in economic and in social environments that those people who empathize with others very seldom are able to help. And what it calls for, again, non-Christian article, it calls for compassion, not empathy. It calls for caring for people in a way that isn't just aligning yourself with them, 
but actually calls for a deeper way of appreciating their situation. And it, it distinguishes empathy from compassion. So if you just Google the perils of empathy, it's a fascinating article. Not written from a Christian perspective, but profoundly Christian, I would argue. So notice what David is doing. David is saying, in this moment, I need to reflect upon the deeper truths about God's character. And when we talk about God's character, it's just good for us to remember that the, his character in action is the working out of his sovereign plan. Right? What is God's plan in the world? It is actually the overflow. Sometimes we don't, put the, we don't connect the dots. God's sovereign plan is his character in action. Therefore, what does God do? He rescues. Because why? He is great in love. Like with the great love with which he loved us. Don't you love that from Ephesians 2? The great love with which he loved us. This God who is rich in, in mercy. This God who is quick to forgive and slow to anger. And David sits here. And so when you go back, I mean, honestly, I would really challenge you. If you ever go like on a serious walk through the Psalms, when they begin in this brokenness, let me find another one that's not that. Um, yeah, look at, look at, look at, I mean, I just picked it here, 28. To you, O Lord, Yahweh, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I'll become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my plea for mercy, and when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil. I mean, David is kind of describing, I think very naturally and normally, like how he's feeling at the time. But then notice how it begins to continue on. Notice how it ends. Do you see the switch? Verse 6. What does David do? And by the way, I want to end, no, look at this. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. And th what I would say, Brenda, going back to your question and how this really fits into Psalm 22, is does God, has God rescued David or not rescued David in 28? And the answer is yet, again, what? Yes. Because not only does he have to deal with Saul, and then does he have to deal with Goliath, and then does he have to deal with and then, does he, and then he has to deal with Absalom. And then he has to deal with the Moabites. And then he has to deal with more Philistines. And then he has to deal with, I mean, when does it ever end for David? Let me ask you this. When will it ever end for you? When will it ever end for you? Yes. Say it louder, Lucia. When we go to heaven, that ultimate rescue. So we're constantly in this, God, where are you? God, where are you? And then, and then what you and I need to do is we need to remember that God has rescued us. We have been rescued, okay? And by the way, you can go back to times where God's rescued you, not even just in Christ, okay, which is the greatest penultimate, wrap it all up, okay? But then there are other times God has rescued me. God rescued my sister, now twice, so there's been tons of rescues. God has rescued me and rescued me and rescued me and rescued me. And so when I cry out at the beginning of Psalm 26, or Psalm 28, oh God, listen to my, do not drag me off with the wicked. 
And then, and then, and then, and then, and, and this is why I think it's good for us. So when Brenda's going through that dark time, hear me again. Please understand that as I talk, I'm not. I'm not saying that I don't kind of weigh whether or not now's the time. Okay, discernment will always be needed. Okay, and then I come to Brenda and I say to her, in light of all the pain that she is going through, Brenda, can we talk about the character of God? And and Brenda probably crying at the time, as we all know, <laughs> which I'm going to still say I admire in you. Whenever you teach, I love it because I, I literally sit there and I go, well, I, I want to be me, so I don't know if I'll cry as much as Brenda. But I just love watching someone respond emotively to the word of God. Do you not? Like it just, it stirs me. Whether I decide to get in a little bit of a different way, it's still stirring to watch someone get emotively challenged by the word of God. So there's Brenda in this moment, and I want to tie her back to the character of God. And so I say to her in her pain, Blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, for he has heard the voice of your pleas for mercy. The Lord be your strength and your shield. In him may your heart trust and be helped. Your heart will exult, and with your song you will give thanks to him. Look at the Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge for the anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Do you notice the, just the swing? So often when I hear people talk about these psalms, they always focus on the, why have you forsaken me? Right? Is that not true? Preachers like me that do that? We, we want to celebrate the beginning. Go back. I think there are, if I remember right, i got to go way back to like 1993 to remember this. Because we went through every psalm. And I think there were two that kind of begin broken and end broken. <laughs> Which, by the way, sometimes... But I, I think that if the psalmist could come back and add five more verses, it'd end better. Okay? I really do. So I, I don't want to deny the facts, but the majority of them begin here, plead into God's character, and then, then, then resolve it, hopefully, because God has and that God will. Like, is that not how, as Christians, we should model what the psalmist does when meeting the feelings of, whether they're exactly rightly described, abandonment, being forsaken, being oppressed. Like, how should we respond? This is why I get a little concerned when I see the church trying to vindicate, for our own sake, oppression. Because the Bible actually describes, like, no, the world will always oppress you and there can be, I shared this in my Bible study. It, how many of you, looking back into history, okay? This is kind of, hear me on this. How many of you looking back into history, look at what women suffered, all the injustices that have been done to women. How many of you, when you look at that, okay, men and women, by the way, how many of you, when you look at that example, you are endeared towards them? Anybody? I am. Like, I'm endeared towards them. Like, I'm drawn to them. I'm drawn to the, to the oppression that they go through, and it, um, it makes me sympathetic to the brokenness that they are. I mean, right, if you're human, I think that's how you should respond. Is that not correct? Think of the civil rights movement. How many of you, when you think about all of the atrocities that happened, okay, and, you know, in our country, the civil rights movement, how many of you, when you see the pictures of people who are just walking and being sprayed with hoses and being attacked by dogs. How many of you just laugh and you think that's hilarious? How many of you are drawn to their cause? 
right? I mean, if you're human, I would argue. And then, by the way, if you're Christian, it's a no-brainer. If you're human, I get it, okay? Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to add another one that you might think is weird, okay? But your grandchildren so don't. But I, I need you to just think through. Don't get caught up on the, on the outside issue. Even when I hear about oppression, when I hear about atrocities that are done to those within the gay and lesbian community, how many of you become sympathetic to their cause? I do. I look at it, and there is something, I, I really think there's something about being oppressed that just pulls humans in. Okay? And I, and I think that's where it gets confusing, right? Well, we go, well, women, sure, I get it. And right, in terms of like gender and in terms of like race, well, sure. But the other ones, I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying they're all the same. I'm just asking you, when you watch someone going through this, does it not endear you to them? And the answer is what? Yes. So this is why, I shared this in my Bible study this morning in Romans 12, but this is why it fits very well with this. This is why I guess I'm not that worried about Christians suffering. Like it doesn't sound like it's the end of the world to me. Like hear me, I'm not looking forward to it should I have it. But the one thing that I'm beginning, and the older I get, right, I love to talk about how old I am, the older I get, the more that I begin to realize maybe that's what's missing in the West particularly. It's not missing in the world. Like maybe if the world saw us not protesting everything, but saw us not for the sake of suffering, that's not what I'm asking for, but for the sake of Christ, what if they saw us like the one in Psalm 22, trusting God to be vindicated? Do you not think that would change the world's perspective of the people of God? I think it would. I really think it would. Now, again, I don't, I'm, I don't, I don't know of a way to manufacture that. I don't know of a way. But I, I, I get a little concerned when I see the church begin to rise up and to try to keep, to try to keep, like, the difficulties that would come. It's, I don't want to have to need rescue. I don't want to have any need for rescue in my life. What do you lose when you don't have a need for rescue? You know what you don't really have in your life is you, you don't have a rescuer. You don't have a hero. You don't, have, you don't even have that moment. I mean, think about how the psalmist, think about how Jesus, why have you forsaken me? And then describes in crazy particular form what happens to Jesus, you know? When I think about David, I, I think about walking on, and I'll be in Israel again soon, and I'll walk into the valley of Elah where David stood before Goliath. And David was very, very confident. But can you imagine the feeling when God vindicated him? Can you just imagine the exhilaration when God vindicates David and now he's king? Where God comes to his rescue and David can just say, wow, like, I didn't force that. That was God. Like, and many of us as Christians try to bypass that. Try to step around it. Try to create a culture or a system where we don't ever have the one where God is the one who rescues. And I think we lose something in that. See, Psalm 22 is a whole lot more than just told you he was the Messiah. Now hear me, you can use it as that. That's a part of it. But it, the primary purpose of it is not just so that when Jesus is dying, we can go, oh wow, that was prophesied back here. 
Because let's look at Psalm 22 and see how now it kind of does the roundabout. Okay, and this might even answer your question a little bit in terms of the how did God forsake Jesus? How did God rescue Jesus? So Psalm 22 begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. So there's the initial appeal, is it not? My God, where are you? And why are you so far day and night? I'm back in Gethsemane. Why are you so far? Now, by the way, the next verse is critical. What does it appeal to? Go back to what we've been talking about. What does it appeal to? God's character. So, by the way, this is how I feel. Very real. I always would tell Andrea, I don't know how you feel about this. But Andrea would say things to me. Have I told you this one? I'm not a real big, we've had these conversations. Again, this gives a lot of you women just the opportunity to go home and to just give your husband a kiss and go, you are not Jim. I love you so much. (laughs) But I would say to my wife, um, when she would say, this is how I feel. Okay, I was wrong at first because, you know, I, I would just, well, it doesn't really matter how you feel. That's wrong. It does matter how you feel. But I would also argue this. It doesn't only matter how you feel. Because I, Andrea would say, well, this is how I feel. I feel like you're never here. And I just quickly learned, okay, I feel like you're not doing enough around here, babe. Now, when she says you're not here, and I try to give examples, she says, no, 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 I just need you to understand it's how I feel. I don't want to talk facts. And so I began to just use that too. I just feel like you don't care for the kids. What do you mean I don't care for the kids? I feed them and I want, no, 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 honey, not facts. I'm just telling you how I feel. See, how many of you are just looking, I married so better than Andrea, right? (laughs) But here's my point. Here's what I had to learn. Feelings matter. Andrea's Andrea's beliefs and Andrea's emotions, they matter deeply, and I love her. But then there also is another side, which is, like, I know that's how you feel, but then let's correspond those feelings to what we know. And again, again, I don't care about Andrea and I. Let's, let's take those feelings about feeling forsaken and let's tie them back to what we know about God. That's what David is doing. That's what Jesus is doing. Okay? Yet you are holy, enthroned in the praise of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So notice that the context here is not just Jesus, and I'm going to focus on the Jesus element as we close, it's not just Jesus on the cross saying, this is how I feel. It's, this is how I feel as I know this truth. And that is what what a mature person is able to do, right? An immature person like Jim says, Andrea, how you feel doesn't matter. It's about the truth, right? That's immature. And an immature person says, I don't care about the truth. It's how I feel. Correct? You see that? But a mature person says what? This is how I feel. And that's real. It's true. How do I feel in light of, and when I say truth, I I want you to always remember, these aren't ideas. It is God. It is a person. These are not principles of truth. Do you understand the difference? It's not a principle that I'm appealing for Andrea and myself. It's not a principle that I want Glenda. Glenda, but don't you understand the principle behind this? 
eh, there's really nothing there. The principal thing is not going to satisfy. That is why what we actually have is when Jesus says, he doesn't say, hey, I've got these really great ideas for you to kind of live in. What does Jesus say? I am the way, the what? So that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus then takes his very real feelings, his real feelings of forsaking and abandoning, and then ties them into Israel's history. Okay? And then you get that whole big middle section, which is what we spend a lot of time focusing on, and I love it, by the way, Psalm 22. And then look where it ends up. So I want to come back to uh, probably verse 22 is where it begins to resolve. Notice how it resolves. For I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. And all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. So I know you felt abandoned, but you know what he did not do? What did he not do? Abandon. This is, who's, this is Jesus speaking. By the way, so we look at him and on the cross, we esteemed him. Isaiah 53 is what? stricken by God. That's how you're supposed to look at it. Cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. By the way, the Bible tells us to look at people that way. But what? But that's not the case. For God does not. So notice how this kind of answers that question. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. Did you notice that? He's not done this. He didn't do that to Jesus. Don't tell me he forsook Jesus. Because the, the, the text says what? You did not hide your face from him, but, his, but heard him when he cried to him. For from you comes praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of... Now, now all of a sudden, this goes even further. <laughs> Notice how the crucifixion of Jesus... This is why... When, if all you're looking for are, uh, you know, elements within Psalm 22 that describe the crucifixion, you miss that the crucifixion is about oh, so much more. How does the psalm end? Look at where it goes. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh. He is the one that rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will, or all the prosperous of the earth, eat and worship before Him. Shall bow all who go down into the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His. Righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Done what? <laughs> done Jesus. That he in Christ. This is why when you miss kind of the final, the bringing up out of the ashes, not only do you get this kind of vindication of God who is holy and righteous and he did not hide his face, but then now all of a sudden at the end of Psalm 22, why did God allow him to be stricken? What did Isaiah 53 teach us last week? I mean, I, I don't know if I ever really noticed this. But at the very end of that, that the many might be proclaimed righteous. So notice how Psalm 22 
walks through all of this, and then the final proclamation is what? And this will be told to the ends of the earth. And all of the earth will share in this splendor, that all of the earth will know that God is great. And that part of Psalm 22, actually, I would argue, is, is better than they've pierced my hands and my feet and a band of eagle, evil dogs surround me and they have divided up my clothing. I mean, I would say those other things really point to the cross, which is really cool. But what the psalm really is about is God's plan and purpose in Jesus Christ. God's character, which is his sovereign plan, which is totally worked out. Okay? So, final point. So then Jesus... In his brokenness, having experienced the, the rescue of God, now undergoing God's plan and apparent abandonment of God, has a plan for him that will ultimately not only rescue him. Does anybody know, like, um, how many of you, when I ever talk about abandon, abandon, how many of you are in, like, um, uh, Acts chapter 2? Which, by the way, quotes another psalm. And you know what it says in Acts 2, what Peter says? He did not abandon his Holy One to Sheol, but brought his body back from death. That's where I keep going when I hear about abandonment. God did not abandon Jesus, right? God brings Jesus through this. For what purpose? For his glory. For what purpose? I mean, how is Jesus vindicated? If you think about this, Jesus is actually not vindicated by not being crucified. Jesus is vindicated not by our appreciation of him. The only one that could actually vindicate Jesus is who? God. Jesus came to say, I came to save the world. How was he going to do that? Through the cross. This was God's plan. I mean, as Christians, we got to get this through our head. The cross and suffering, not for the sake of suffering, but suffering and oppression and difficulty is the plan in a broken world. And may we learn to like David and like Jesus. Be honest in how we feel. Cry out to him. Never forget his character so that we too can share in his vindication. That's all I have.